Sweet. Okay, we are uh, we're in Second Thessalonians tonight. If uh, if you want to go there, and while you go there, let me. Uh, I want to pray for us to get started. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open up our hearts and open up our eyes tonight to see you in it and to, uh, to hear what you want from us. I pray that you would use it um, by your spirit to transform us and to make us and to grow us more like Jesus. Uh, give, us, give us hearts and ears to listen tonight. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So, 2 Thessalonians, um, how many of you guys does it feel, if you're like me, does it feel like it's been like uh, years since we were in 1 Thessalonians? Like, I, I started kind of cracking this open and getting myself ready for it um, early last week after we got done with our Roman stuff, and I just thought, man, we've, it feels like so long ago. Um, we've done two other series since then with Ecclesiastes and then a little gospel section through Romans. And then, of course, we've had um, the world's longest Christmas break this year in between things. And so uh, it's just been forever. So I want to, before we go into Second Thessalonians, we're really just going to do the first four verses tonight. But before we jump into that, I do want to kind of refresh us on this church in Thessalonica or Thessalonica, however you want to pronounce it, um, and, and just kind of get our, get our memories refreshed on what started the church, what started the first letter, so that we can lead ourselves up to this second one today. Uh, the church in Thessalonica was planted on Paul's second missionary journey. So his first one took off from Antioch here into Cyprus, and then uh, almost entirely, actually entirely, in this little region of Asia Minor. His second trip went into Asia Minor to check on all these churches. He picks up Timothy. He and Silas are rolling together. He picks up Timothy and on this trip um, makes his way eventually through through a series of things, God kind of leading him. He keeps wanting to go up here, up north, but God leads him this direction and moves him across to Europe where first he goes into Philippi. In Philippi, um, he gets uh, beaten and thrown in jail there. I don't know if you remember that. Spends the night in jail. He's praying and singing with Silas when an earthquake comes, breaks open the jail, and he gets to share with the Philippian jailer there, all of this stuff. But he gets asked to leave Philippi, and that's when he makes his way over to Thessalonica. And Paul's practice, everywhere he goes, was to first see if the city has any sort of synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. You need to have at least 10 Jewish males, 10, I don't know where that's, at least 10 (laughs) Jewish males in your city in order to... in order to be able to have a synagogue there. And so that's what Philippi didn't actually have one. There were, the women were meeting down by a river, which means there, there weren't that many. But in uh, Thessalonica, they have one. So he goes in, and the reason he likes to go there is because Paul is a Pharisee. He's been trained up under one of the most uh, famous rabbis of the time, Gamaliel, and he knows his stuff. He knows his, his Hebrew scripture, and he is able to go into the synagogue and teach from the Hebrew scriptures, the synagogue being basically kind of uh, a mix of, of their version of church slash school, kind of a training area. A lot of people think of the Jewish temple as kind of their equivalent as the, of the church. It's not really the case. You didn't go to the temple all that often. The synagogue was your weekly thing that you went to, and you would have that in your town. And so he would go in there, and it says on three different Sabbaths, so for at least three weeks, he went into the Thessalonica, and he began to teach to them from the Scriptures and begin to show how the Old Testament Scriptures were pointing towards this man named Jesus. And as he begins to do this, after a few weeks, he says that the, Luke says in Acts 17, this is where we find out about Thessalonica, in Acts 17 that a number of the Jewish people there in the synagogue uh, buy in. They, they believe him. They see the truth as he's, as he's explaining how all these texts have been pointing towards Jesus as the Messiah. And not just that, but it says a few, uh, a number of God-fearing Greeks, God-fearers. And, and what that means is Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God. They believed in the Hebrew Scriptures, but they did not, they had not kind of taken the full step towards converting to Judaism, namely circumcision, but maybe not always following all the ceremonial laws and all of that. But, but, they, but they were monotheists. They, in, in a polytheistic world, these Gentiles looked at the Jewish scriptures and said, this makes sense. 
Um, and so they would still go to the synagogue and they would hear Paul preach. And so a number of them were won over as well. And, and Luke points out that amongst that group is a, a handful of leading women in the city. city uh, women who were in the higher class who maybe had some rank, uh, some form of leadership or whose husbands were in some form of leadership. And so he begins to win these people over after several weeks. But then, of course, uh, a number of the Jewish people in the synagogue don't like this. This, this guy coming into their synagogue and, and leading, they believe, leading them, leading these people away from the truth when Paul says, no, I'm actually leading them to what your truth has been pointing to all this time. But the Jewish people in that synagogue get angry about it and they end up finding a group of people kind of in the marketplace, this kind of rough crowd, this rough, rough gang of, of, of people, and they kind of stir up. A bit of a riot, a bit of an uproar in the city over Paul and his teaching. What they do is they tell the Jews that Paul and his companions are anti-God. They're preaching against Yahweh and leading people away from the truth. They tell the Gentiles that Paul is anti-Caesar. See, Thessalonica had, um, like a lot of towns in, like a lot of cities back in the first century, they had a imperial cult there in the middle of it. The imperial cult was the a organized, systematic worship of Caesar and worship specifically of Rome. And, and this was a big deal that kind of showed your allegiance to Rome. It, was a big, it helped politically, it helped socially, it helped economically to have a cult there that showed your devotion to Caesar. But of course, when someone comes in and says, you don't give your worship to Caesar, you give your worship to God, and Caesar may be kind of Lord of this little area here, but the true Lord is Jesus, that can cause some problems. And so the people tell everyone that they're against Yahweh if you're Jewish, and everyone else they're against Rome and they could get us in some big trouble here. And so an uproar starts in the city. They go looking for Paul, Silas, Timothy. They can't find him, so they find this man named Jason who's become a recent Christian and they drag him before the courts along with a few others and, uh, and charge him with some things. They may make him post bail. But, but the anger is still there, kind of the fervor is still there in the city. So that night, they smuggle, under cover of darkness, they smuggle Paul and Silas, and we think probably Timothy, out of Thessalonica as well. And they begin to make their way down this coast of Achaia, and they end up in Corinth, 190 miles away. Now, Paul's practice, what Paul likes to do, is go into these towns, and these are brand new places for the gospel. Nobody's ever heard anything about Jesus there before, especially when you're talking about Gentile cities. Most of them don't know much about the Old Testament scriptures either, and, and they, they know nothing. And so Paul likes to, if he's going to leave, first of all, he likes to stay for a little bit so he can teach, but when he leaves, he likes to leave somebody behind who can help the people, who can teach them and instruct them and help them grow in the faith. He doesn't get a chance to do that here because he gets run out of town so quickly. And now he's 190 miles away, which is forever away back then and a day before vehicles uh, when you're just walking that way. And so um, he in Corinth begins to worry about this young church that is just just starting, just got birthed together, and, and here it is trying to make it, but not just make it, but to make it in the middle of a town that has a very anti-Christian feel to it, where there can be some very violent persecution. And, and so Paul tries to figure out a way that he can find out what's going on there, and, and he struggles to figure that out, and he really, he really is beginning to despair over this church, wondering if it even exists, wondering if it even made it or if it just withered under the pressure in the few weeks after he had left, in the time after he left. So what he ends up doing when he cannot take it anymore, he sends Timothy back in. And we don't know if Timothy has to sneak in. We know that Timothy would have been probably less recognizable than Paul. And so he's got a better chance of getting in and slipping in and finding out if the church is there. Timothy goes. He discovers not only is it alive, but it is growing. And he comes back and reports, to, reports this to Paul, who is ecstatic. But Timothy says there are also a few snags. Um, first of all, some of these Christians are wondering about their status. Um, they're wondering if God is like with them, if, if they really are pleasing God, why did life get so much harder for them when they started following him? So Paul writes to tell them about that. Um, there's also, uh, seems to be a lack of understanding about some basic Christian ethics. So Paul writes to tell them about that. And, and there's a few things that have to do with doctrine, specifically with the coming of the return of Jesus. And so he writes to tell them about that. And that is the letter of 1 Thessalonians. 
Um, he, he immediately, when he does that, he, if, if you remember in, in 1 Thessalonians, especially that first chapter, it is a letter just filled with gratitude and worship and praise. He's so excited that the church is going well there, but he wants to help them there. Now, we know less about how the second letter got written. We don't really know any other history. It appears that it comes very soon after the letter to the uh, the first letter that he sends to the Thessalonians there, um, and and so it appears that it came shortly after. And based on the topics, it appears that Paul has from somebody. Timothy or maybe a Philippian brother. We know that the Philippian church liked to try to raise money even though they were poor. They liked to try to raise money to send down to, uh, to help Paul with his ministry and mission. So it could be that on the way down to Thessalonica uh, or on the way down to Corinth that a Philippian brother stopped in Thessalonica and then brought word down to Paul of what has happened. Uh, but but based on the text, we, we know that Paul probably discovered three things. One is that persecution had either broken out again or it had intensified. We knew that persecution was going on in this city at this time. Now remember, um, they, they went pretty crazy on him when he was first there. And if you read through in Acts, actually what you find, I didn't draw it on here, but Berea is a little bit further away from Thessalonica. And Paul went to Berea next and began to spread the gospel. And the, the people were so passionately against Paul and his teaching in Thessalonica that they actually got wind of him being in Berea and, and didn't say, well, you know, good riddance, at least he's not in our town. No, they actually went down to Berea to stir up trouble for him there. So that's how anti-Christian they are there. And, and so Paul hears that persecution is broken out again, and he writes to encourage them in the middle of that. Um, a second thing that Paul seems to hear is that there is a new misunderstanding about the return of Jesus. In fact, if you read, um, I'll just go to it real quick. Um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, I want to read this to you. Actually, we'll start in 1. It says, Now... Chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So it appears, actually, that somebody has um, perhaps written a letter to this church claiming to be from Paul that has said that Jesus, that the day of the Lord has already come and that they missed it. And so there, there, there's some anxiety and panic going on there, and Paul writes to address that as well in this letter. And the third thing it seems like Paul has heard is that his initial efforts to deal with some of their ethics problems um, has not really worked very well. In fact, it may have even kind of stirred up some more trouble. So Paul writes to deal with some of those same behavioral issues again in the book of Second Thessalonians. So he writes to address these issues. These are the things that we're going to be seeing kind of taking place over the next uh, four or five weeks as we dig into this letter. These three topics are going to come up in, in varying degrees. Tonight, like I said, we're just going to look at the first four verses, just Paul's introduction to the letter. It'll be somewhat brief tonight. Now I'll hand it over to Scott. Um, chapter 1, verses 1 through, tall, one through 2. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He opens here, if you, if you flip over to 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that he opens almost exactly the same way. 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing. Only difference is in the first one where he says grace and peace, he says in the second one, grace to you and peace from, he'll say it again, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the church is in, notice how he describes it. The church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is actually a pretty good way of describing the church, what this church is. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, it, it's this indication that the church owes its existence to and draws its life from God. That's what he says. You owe Your existence is based in Him and you draw your life. You continue to live based on the work of God and the work of God in Jesus. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul often starts his letter with thanksgiving. He likes to start it off with uh, with the thanks that he has for his audience, for the church that he's writing to, grateful for them. And in here he thanks God specifically for two things. He thanks God for their growing faith and their growing love, which he actually mentions both of those things at the beginning of the first letter. Again, this looks a whole lot like the first letter up front. Uh, only there he just talks about the kind of the labor that is being produced by their faith and love. So in the first one he says, I see faith and love. And then the second one he says, I'm discovering actually that it's not just there, but that it's growing. That it's actually increasing um, since I heard from you last. And so he's really grateful and thankful about that. Two quick things, and, and then I'll wrap up my, my half here. Um, the first is this, um, we tend to understand this idea of a love that can grow, that you can grow more in love with something or someone, those kinds of things. So we, we get that a little bit. That's not too crazy to us, uh, although I think we still have some mis- misunderstandings in this area. We, we tend to think that um, love can kind of, love is something that happens to us a little bit. So, like, I don't grow my love for pizza. I tasted pizza. It was amazing. And so I love pizza, right? I, I, and, 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 and so I just, I can't help who I love or don't love when it comes to, like, romance stuff. Like, I can't just make myself love someone. I can't just make myself love something. It's kind of something that just happens to me. The Bible talks about love differently than that. And faith, actually, we often talk about in a similar way. In fact, we sometimes talk about faith as though it is kind of this static commodity. We say things like, man, I wish I had your faith, as though it's something that someone just kind of naturally has. Um, uh, People say, man, I can't help it that I don't just believe. I don't have faith or or I've lost my faith. Again, as though it's this commodity that I I can lose, like my keys or something like that. Uh, this isn't the way that the scriptures describe it. Um, it is not something that, that some people just fortunately get and others don't necessarily, although some people can have the gift of faith, the spiritual gift, which means they do tend to have little bits more, but it's, it's, it is something I believe that we have, we have some say in, we have some control over, because faith is not simply belief. That's why I think we talk about faith as though it's something you either just have or not. Well, I just, I just can't believe in that. I'm sorry, I don't know how to believe in that. Or I, or I wish I could believe like you believe. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not the fullest picture of what faith is in the Bible. Faith is a relationship of trust in God. A relationship of trust in God, and therefore, just like any other relationship, it can be cultivated. It can be grown. You can have more faith than you do now. And you should have more faith. Like in in a year or two, you should have more of it than you do now. You should have a greater degree of trust in God than you do at this time. It's something we ought to be growing in. You can ask for more of it, actually, from God. And it's it's not simply an issue of some people just find it easy to believe and some people don't. There's there's some truth to that. But but it's not something you just have or don't. Like it, it grows in you. Love is the same. It can also be cultivated. I don't just love something just because, well, I happen to have an affinity for that. But I have the ability to grow in that. And Paul says that he sees that taking place in the church here. Um, second thing, and this is something that John Stott points out in his commentary on, on 2 Thessalonians, um, that Paul gives us actually a great example of what our attitude and response ought to be when we see other brothers and sisters growing, when we see Christians growing. So there are two ends of the spectrum. When we see God working in somebody's life, when we see somebody growing in their faith or growing in their holiness or growing in their giftedness, two kind of ends of the spectrum. And the, um, the first end of the spectrum is flattery, which is to go to that person and tell them, man, you are, you are amazing. Someone's got a really good gift for singing, for leading worship, for speaking, or you just notice that someone is really like um, a very spiritual person, as we might say, or very godly. And we just go, man... What is it about you that is just so amazing? I mean, you are so good at, put it in, fill in the blank, teaching. You are so great at leading worship. You are awesome, and, and I wish I could be more like that, or I'm really proud of you, or, or I can tell that you are really dedicated to growing in holiness and purity. Man, it shows in your life. 
And those things aren't actually bad things to say. Those are some good and encouraging things. But by the very nature of them, we center those truths in the person themselves. And can actually have like a, can have a tendency to bolster someone's pride and, and end up actually counteracting the very maturity that we're trying to compliment them on. Um, that, that the very thing I'm excited about seeing in you, when I begin to tell you how great it is in you, can actually have the opposite effect and begin to dra- kind of drag you down in those things. So the opposite end of the spectrum is, is we don't know exactly what to do with that, and I don't want to just like um, puff somebody up with knowledge. I don't want to just give somebody a big head. I don't know if you've ever had this struggle. When you see somebody leading worship well, or you hear somebody teach well, or something like that, and you go, I, I feel like I need to, I want to tell them that, but I don't know. It just feels weird to say those things, to, to give somebody a big head over those kinds of things. Um, and so sometimes the opposite in, from flattery is silence. And that is to say nothing. But, but this doesn't do the work that I think we're called to of encouraging our brothers and sisters when growth is taking place in them. So Paul's way finds something kind of um, this perfect blend of the two. And that is that he thanks God for what is going on in a person's life. And then he tells them about that thing. That Paul likes to thank God, but, but also let the people know that I'm thanking God for those things. So a better term than you're awesome, or you do such a great job at that, or man, I really love hearing you lead worship, or I really love watching you minister to kids, whatever those things. Those are okay things, but, but I thank God for you, is the way Paul likes to say it. I'm grateful for the gifts he's given you and the way that they strengthen or encourage me. I can tell that God is growing you, and I am thrilled about that. And uh, this, is, this is, I believe, like a, a really biblical and really sound way of doing it. It allows us to, as Stott says, this is the way that affirms without flattering and encourages without puffing up. Um, as I was reading through this and thinking through this today, I just, I mean, I want, to, I want to talk like this more often to my brothers and sisters. I probably actually uh, err on the side of silence a lot of times. And I don't know, that's, that's a good question for you to think through. Do you err on the side of silence or flattery? Probably better if you err on the side of flattery. Um, but if you could use that to, 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 to give honor where it fully deserves, and that is in God's work in their life, and to thank God but allow those people to see it in them, I believe is a great way for us to encourage the church and give God the glory that is due to Him. That is what I have, and we'll take a couple-minute break, and then Scott will get up to lead us in the next section. So yeah, these, these, these challenges are, it's, it's not necessarily just about being disciplined, but it's about, it's about using these, these things as an opportunity to, um, to let Christ challenge you and, and to be molded and shaped into His image. I mean, when we, when we, um, when we surrender ourselves to, to Him to, with something simple like this, simple actually, hard, some of them are going to be challenging, but but when, when you surrender to it and say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you with it. I'm going I'm to allow you to do whatever it is you're going to do in me through this process. Um, there's something that happens. You, you're kind of giving control to him, and that's really a goal. The more we can give control to him to work on us, um, the, the better it is. So, so we are, uh, we're in Second Thessalonians, and we're just tackling the first four verses. And specifically... I want, to, I want to talk a little bit more about faith and love. And I was reminded specifically about love. I was reminded of something I did a few years ago uh, at this thing called Youthquake. So Youthquake is this, this camp that our church goes to in Colorado. We take about 100, 120 people. How many of you have been to Youthquake in this room? So one, two, three, four, only six of us, um, seven of us. Uh, so, I mean, literally, we'll... Our church, a church in Owasso, church in Kansas, will take anywhere from 300, 350 or so people basically camping outside on the side of a mountain for a whole week. It, it's, it's, it's cold. There are bears. It's awesome. Um, I mean, it's like it's like has Anthony's name all over it. So, so one particular week, one particular, one, one particular year, the, the theme, they always have a theme, the theme was conflicted. And uh, one of the exercises they had, they always put 
put people in family groups, and they had they had groups of family groups walking around to these different stations on the campsite. And and this this particular one, I was asked, like several of us were asked, five or so, were asked to give like a five minute um, challenge and encouragement. But it, but it had to be a conflicted message. It had to be a message that they heard in the world that 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 was conflicted, that, that made them kind of wonder like, whether or not they should trust it or believe it. And so uh, I chose to do something like this. Okay? So I'll just give you a sample of what I did. So I was in this clearing. Okay? We were in this like, uh, tent site. So they had cleared these trees in this big circle. They had tents, uh, tent, uh, what are they called? Tent, tent pads. Okay. Yeah. Why would you even answer that question? I'm trying to hear correct answers, and you're, anyway, pavilion? No. Um, so anyway, so these tent sites were around, and this big uh, campfire is right in the middle, right? So I'm standing in this, the center of this, this, this circle, and there's trees, beautiful pine trees all around, and mountains in the background. And I had the students come up, and I said, okay, I just want you guys to take this in. It was like, imagine the sun just going down. It was beautiful. So I had them, I had them just kind of all do a 360. And just turn around and look at all the trees and the mountains in the background. And just the quiet. That the, I mean, it was just, it's beautiful. And I said, I just want you to guys, I want you guys to realize, like, God created all this and it's amazing. And he created all of this for us to enjoy. That, that you know, when you look around, you see all these things, you, you see the beauty of it. I, I, want, I want it to remind you of how much God loves you. That, that God loves you so much that He would do all of this for you to enjoy. And I said, how many of you know, like, what, what's, what would be the most famous verse in the Bible? And so I'll ask you, how many, what would be the most famous verse in the Bible? John 3.16. John, John 3.16 says, for God so loved what? The world. See? God so loved us that He gave us. Right? So He gave. And He gave and, 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 and so look at all these things that God did this for you. And you know, sometimes in churches, um, people try to, they just, they complicate the message of Jesus by making it things that you have to believe and doctrines and all this stuff that just complicate it when really it's about how much God loves you. That He was willing to send Jesus for you. Um, like if you were the only person that ever existed in all the world, Jesus would have came and died for you. That's how much He loves you. And He would do anything for you. In fact, you're, you're like, you're, you're the greatest thing to Him. Like, you're, you're the, His, um, He loves you so much. You're like, you're the greatest um, treasure that He has, is you. And so I was just going on and on and on. And so the way this works is they were, they were going around in different groups, right? And, and what I didn't know was the other guys that were giving messages were like, you know what, you should have sex before marriage. It's cool. Don't even think about it. Like, just try drugs, party, you know, live it up. Don't, the, 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 don't, don't not have fun. I mean, like, like, they were giving these, so as youth pastors giving these messages that were so not what, what they would normally hear from a youth pastor. And so... The, the students, they had to kind of figure out, okay, something's wrong here. They're all saying the wrong thing. Well, when they got to me, okay, when they got to me, they came in like this, waiting for me to say something crazy, and I started talking about God's love. And then after a while, was, half of them were going, okay. <laughs> this, guy's, this guy's making sense. And so they, I think in, in their minds, they're trying to figure out, like, okay, one of these is not like the others. Maybe that's what it is. They got, they're supposed to figure out which message to listen to and which one not to. And, and, uh, and so, like I said, a lot of them were shaking their heads and like going, yeah, that's right, you know? And then there were a few that were still going, standing in the back, mostly Sunnybrook kids were going, you know? And so, but after that, um, is when some of the other sponsors were telling me what some of the other guys were saying. I didn't know. Um, but that reminded me, like, of how much we have hijacked this word love. 
And so I want to talk about that in, in, in just a second. But I want to, I want to point out a couple things about, um, about the, this idea of faith and love that Paul hits on in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So I want to read again. We, we, had always to, we, sorry, we had always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So a couple of things I want to point out, and then I want to spend our remaining moments talking about specifically love. But Paul, the first thing is this, that Paul, um, Paul prays for them to grow in faith and love, and gets to, to witness like God answer that prayer in the midst of great affliction. So turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. In the previous letter, you're going to see Paul pray specifically that they grow in faith and love. Verse 10 says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Like that's what Paul prays in, in the first letter. And then, and then over time, you know, however much time is lapsed in between, Paul hears of their faith and love growing in abundance. And that's not just something that he assumes happen, is happening. I would assume he would not point it out if he didn't have evidence to it. Like somehow word had gotten back to him that this is what's happening. Their, their faith is growing and their love is growing. And it's an amazing thing. And it was happening in the midst of affliction and persecution and trials increasing. So think about that. Their faith in God and their love for one another is growing as persecution is growing. So, which, which kind of is, is, is an interesting idea. And if you read throughout the church, or the history of the church, in Acts especially, and then even throughout church history, um, whenever the church is persecuted is when it grows the most. So in Acts chapter 8, uh, after Stephen is stoned, and then Paul goes on a rampage, and the church is scattered, and that's when the church grows the most. Um, you, see, you see throughout church history, almost the opposite, when the church becomes in power, is when the church decreases in power. And then when the church is the minority, and isn't sitting at the head of the table culturally, is when you see the church starting to thrive again. It's just an interesting dynamic. Like, I don't know if we were ever meant to be in, in control and in power, but to be servants. And so it's just an interesting idea um, that their faith grows along at, while persecution and trials grow. Um, the other idea is that the reason they were being persecuted was because of, almost directly tied to, their allegiance to Jesus. So do you have room in your understanding of God that the more you grow in love for Jesus and the more you live for God could actually mean hard things happening to you? So this isn't necessarily true today um, in our culture. It may not be true in your kids' culture it most likely will be true in either your kids' or your grandkids' life if the Lord, what? Should tarry. Should tarry. Um, so if the Lord tarries, which is just a King James version of waiting, if the Lord waits to return. But if, if your kids and your grandkids see, see America, there could be a day where it won't be advantageous for you to be a Christian. And that's an interesting idea. Um, that see now you can put a fish on a on a business card, and in the Midwest you might get more business, right? But there may be a day where you put a fish on a business card and it get it gets ripped up. Like I ain't going there. You're crazy. So, so I don't know that's an interesting idea, and some cultures today exist in that in that same way. Throughout the Bible, and I want to just mention a couple. Um, you have Hebrews 11, the second, the, like the end of Hebrews 11. You have all these faithful people who are experiencing hardship and killed, murdered for their, for their faith. I mean, we know this happens. There are over and over throughout the Bible um, is this, this thing that because of people's 
faith and allegiance to Jesus and to God, um, that bad things can happen to them. And so this idea that if we love God more, then He'll bless us more and life will be easier isn't the case, isn't always the case, and um, certainly isn't in the Bible. Another one I want to point to, point out to, is, is similar, it's, it's, it's different, but, it's, but I love it, and so I'm going to point it out. It's Habakkuk 3. I mean, what's the last time you were in Habakkuk? Okay, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses um, 17 through 19, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Chapter 3, 17 through 19, write that down. Okay, this is Habakkuk. This is him experiencing hardship. In fact, him not being able to see any food or provision of food or coming food at, at all. But him saying, but yet I will trust you, God. It's an interesting idea. Okay, the second thing I want to point out is something that, that Drew talked about um, is Paul has a okay, theocentric, which is a God-centered. Okay, theo is God, God-centered, theocentric um, understanding of reality. Like he recognizes that, that it's God who's, he's thanking God for their faith and their love growing and increasing. That God is who he's thankful for. God is the one who is responsible for um, their growth. In fact, turn to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you would. 1 Corinthians 3. There is some division in, in Corinth, in this church in Corinth, because um, some were like, no, Apollos, he's the guy. He's, he's more eloquent than Paul. He's the one that, that re- really did all the... The great work here. And the other saying, no, 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 Paul's the one. Paul came in and he did this and he did that. And so Paul speaks to this in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So he who plants and he who waters is one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so Paul's pointing out, listen, yeah, I may have come in at first, and Paul and Apollos may have come in later, but this all gets back to him. Like, he receives all glory and praise for this. He's the one that's doing all the growth, not, not me, not us. So Paul has this, this theocentric understanding of reality that, that, that all these things that are happening that God receives and deserves the glory. It's God's church that Paul is boasting for, uh, boasting in. And, and I love what Drew pointed out. Like, like what, this church, what Paul does a great job of is affirming what they're doing, but giving, giving all the credit to God at the same time. He's ultimately pointing them to Him, which brings us to kind of this last observation that I want to point out, is that faith and love are a big deal to Paul. So uh, turn to Colossians 1. Faith and love, Paul seems to want to highlight quite a bit. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. Okay, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Verse 15, chapter 1, Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Um, so he's, again, highlighting their faith and their love for the saints. And then turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, or verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul seems to lump these two together as 
Like, this is how I know you are a church. This is how I know you are followers of Jesus. This is how I know that God, that, that something divine happened in you is because I see this faith in you and I see your love for one another. And we talk about faith quite a bit. Um, we know that faith is a big deal. We know that um, it, it is um, that, that we receive Jesus by faith alone. And yet, faith is never alone. Faith should never just be alone. James tells us this. Faith without works is what? Dead. Dead. And so what does faith do? How does faith work itself out? And, and I think there are probably lots of answers to that. But I want to talk about one. I want to talk about one that I think is really important to, to us, to you, your, your um, specifically generation, um, and even, even relative now because it's you know Valentine's Day is around the corner. But I didn't realize that until today. I really had not planned on talking about love just because of Valentine's Day. I would not want to do that. Um, it's one of my least favorite holidays. But anyway, that's a whole other subject. So, I have issues. Um, I have issues, that's what I said. Um, <laughs> okay, funny story. So one time I was teaching this, this, this life group leader class, and one of my, and there was, I don't know, we had lots of life group leaders, but there was this, this guy that brought, this is so not part of my thing. Um, this guy brought his senile mom, okay, and sat in, and she did that the whole time. What did he say? The whole time. It was so distracting. It was one of my, it's like, like scars from ministry was that moment. And Chloe just did it. No, it's good. Um, yeah, that's two. That's two. That's two pretty, that you're a part of. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, no. So, so why, why does Paul seem to? Why does Paul seem to talk about love? Um, this is this is a this is a really like Paul, and it's not just love. Your love for everything that you are loving. No, it's love for who? No, nope. the saints. It's your love for the church. No wonder why Anthony struggled with that one. It's your love for the church. No, just kidding. Oh, hey, hey. It's only because I know you. It's only, it's only because I know you. Um, so this is a really big deal. This, like, the Bible in the New Testament, more than loving everybody, talks about loving the church. In fact, commands you to love one another, to love your brothers and sisters in the church, more than it commands you to love those outside the church. We don't think about that. Because it's, it's talking, all these letters are two churches, and all the one another verses, right? There's like 51 or 52, depending on how you count them. They're all to the church. Love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, carry one another's burdens. All that is for the church. And so the reason we have this commitment to a community thing, as one of our five things, um, it's because it's a really big deal to Paul. It's a, and it's not just a really big deal to Paul, it's a really big deal to Jesus. Turn to John 13. John 13, 34. John 13, 34 and 35. says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. We'll talk about that in a second. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So Jesus says, you know what? The world will know that you are mine and that you are followers of me if you love one another. How you love one another is going to determine um, whether or not the church or the world will recognize you as followers of Jesus. So it's a really big deal to Jesus that we love one another. Um, another verse that needs to be thrown in there is 1 John 4. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. Go to the right, and if you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. <laughs> First John chapter 4. 
verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Uh, if, we, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. The NIV says, His love is made complete in us, right? So think about that. God says, yeah, you're to love me, but if you don't love one another, then you really don't then your love isn't complete. In fact, down, if you go down, verse 19, or for, sorry, verse 20. Um, sorry, we'll start 19. We love because He first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. A liar. Boy, that sounds mean, Paul. Yeah, or sorry, John, whoever you are. John would hate that, that I called him Paul. Anyway, not. Um John calls you a liar if you say you love God and yet you don't love your brother or your sister in Christ. For he who does um, not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John, God would say, you, you, you can't say you love me and then not love my church. Um, try walking up to a husband and saying, hey, I like you a lot. But I think your wife is a beep. <laughs> it wouldn't, I don't think that would go well for you. So, so the church, the church is the bride of Christ, right? So think about it. Like how, how, how can we say that we, that we can have a relationship with Jesus, that we can love Jesus? I, just, I, just, I really don't need the church, though. I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. I don't like... Um, I don't, I'm not into organized religion, all the things that, that people say. And yet Jesus would say, if you, if you can't love my church, I don't know if you can love me. Um, so the New Testament, is, it's, it's kind of a big deal to love the bride of Christ, to love his church. Um, and you can't love the church if you're not a part of the church, if you're not a part of a body. This is why we stress this so much. It's because we want you to recognize that it's not just about you and Jesus. Yeah, cool. You guys are cool, but you're really not cool if you're, if you're not placing yourself a part of a body so that you can love and be loved and so that you can use the gifts that God's given you and, and others can use their gifts to serve you as well. Like you just, it's just you're, you're getting half the, half the, the puzzle um, and you're missing a very large piece that, that seems to be commanded in Scripture. And so it's important that we are a part of a church so that we can love the church, so that we can grow in love um, for God. And, and our love, when we love one another, our love is, is perfected. Our love for God is perfected. Our love um, is made complete. But where do we get our understanding of love? What um, what is the object of our love? How, how do we love? And so I want you to think about, um, do you love, how, the way in which you love people, is it come from your, uh, from your environment growing up, from how you saw maybe your family show love or people that you know show love? Or is it, come, is it influenced by culture? Is it influenced by commercials, by shows? Um, or is it influenced by an understanding of, of what Jesus said, um, love others as I have loved you. Okay, so how did Jesus love? And that's how he wants me to love. And is there a difference? I remember driving to work um, when I was, we lived in California, and I, I remember listening to this radio program, John Piper's on, and he forever changed my understanding of love. Forever. And I, I still remember driving in, I was driving this 1990 um, Volkswagen Passat that someone gave us, which is an awesome gift. Um, had a sunroof, it was red. Uh, I remember driving into, town, into, the, into the parking lot, and I remember pulling into the spot, and I remember listening to the rest of this program, and I remember going straight into the office, 
because they said you can go if you like this, whatever you can go online and download. So I went and paid however much to to download this this audio, and then I also downloaded the manuscript, and I was just reading through it this past week because it forever changed. He forever changed my understanding of love. And essentially, he was describing how in America, um, if you, in fact you, you you know this and you see this, uh, you can't help but see it now. These commercials about love. I love it when diamond commercials come on. Those are the, those are the most blatant um, commercials because it's like, if you buy a diamond, she will know that you love her. It's like this, diamonds are forever. Um, they're eternity. They're, I mean, it is overtly, like overtly anti-God in some sense, right? There's like, there's no God in this. It's like, buy a diamond and that is love. Um, and in and, and, and all these other advertisements, it's the way in which you show love to someone is you get, this, you get them something so amazing that they will think, you must think I'm amazing if you bought me something amazing. Mm-hmm. So the way you, so in other words, what they're teaching us is the way you love someone is you help them see how amazing they are. You help them grow in their self-esteem. And, and, and what, what they're not saying is, is when you help someone grow, when you help someone love themselves more, they'll love you back. You'll get something in return. And so love becomes very, I mean, very self-motivated when it's all about helping someone feel better about themselves. But is that the way Jesus loves? So he says... Um, Love one another as I have loved you. And so, let's think about what Jesus did. Well, actually, let's think about what God did. Let's go back to that verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave who? His only Son, Jesus. And who is Jesus? The Lord. Okay? So, God so loved the world that He gave Himself to the world. God so loved the world that He gave Himself. Like the way in which He showed love was to give Himself to the world so that they would love Him more. Like, so God's um, so in love with Himself. Okay? God r- recognizes that He is the greatest being in all the universe and that to be in love with Him is the greatest thing that someone could do. And so God sent Jesus so that we could have a relationship with Him. So that we can love Him. So we can be reconciled to Him. So the way God loves is by helping you love Him more. And He says, Jesus says, you should love one another the way I have loved you. And Jesus loved this, loved His people, loved one another by sacrificing Himself so that they can be reconciled to God so they could see and know God, so they could love God. And that's pretty amazing. Divine love is doing whatever it takes at, at the cost, at whatever the cost, and for God it cost him his son to enthrall you with um, what is infinitely and eternally uh, with God himself as, as who will satisfy you. So ultimately, it is God, um, God has your happiness in mind, but it's not about you being somebody as much as it is about you seeing somebody. Right? It's about you seeing Him more clearly. So when you, to love somebody isn't about helping them grow in self-esteem. So a real quick story. I remember traveling back, my family, uh, when, when we decided to move from California to Oklahoma, uh, all of our stuff got packed up in the biggest U-Haul you could find, which is ridiculous. It made me realize how much junk we had. But anyway, another story. And real cool story, the gym and an elder flew out, surprised me, to drive all of our stuff back. So we didn't have to worry about our stuff. We could just kind of vacation with our family on the way here. And one of the things we wanted to do was go to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been in the Grand Canyon? Okay. Wow, lots of you. How many of you have been with three little kids? You have. With three well, little kids? Um, it was yes or no? It was yes? With 
my, yes, I have, um, with my oldest brother, Barry, and his. With kids. Okay, so did it freak you out that there are no rails? I don't know if you saw that as a parent. Okay. Okay, so I don't know if, I don't know, we didn't go, we didn't drive around the whole thing, we didn't have that much time. But we drove into one spot, and you walk up, and there's no rails. There's just, there's like cliffs, and like little um, platforms and platforms, and then cliff of death. And so, in my mind, we've got three little kids, one of which is a three and a half little energetic boy, who... It freaked my wife and I out. Like, we literally we could not enjoy the Grand Canyon at all. At all, at all. And so, it was like, okay, you hold the kids. I'm going to walk up. And okay, okay. Okay, now you go look. And she would do that. And then finally, we found this gift shop that had this glass pane that you could st- kind of stand on the edge to. It was still a little, little weird with the kids. But, you know, this big, giant glass pane. You could stand and look out. And I finally got a moment. To just kind of take it all in. And it looked, it didn't even look real. I don't know if you guys have been there, but it looked like a painting. And I'm going, but that's not a painting, that's real. And it's it's just, it's so, so beautiful. And I remember thinking about that, like, I remember the very first time I got to see the Rockies. When my family went out to Colorado for the summer, and we stood at the edge of this mountain, this giant mountain. And I remember, it's like the first time I went surfing. It's a whole other story, but the first time I went surfing... So my, this guy wanted to take us surfing, and, and apparently a storm hit the night before, and came. The, the waves were giant, apparently not a good day to learn how to surf. I didn't know. It was like my first summer there in California, and I got pounded and pounded and pounded and finally gave up and crawled out of the ocean and said, God, I, I, I submit to you. I don't, this is, this, you're, you've been trying to spit me out of this ocean ever since I got here, so I'm just going to stay out. And it was the same kind of feeling, like, have you ever been in, in something like that? Right? Big, deep canyons or big, giant mountains, and been, been in the, in, right in the middle of it, or, or, or standing before it, and just amazed at the bigness of it. Like, no one stands in front of those things and thinks how awesome they are. Like, there's something about it. And I think it's, I think there is something here about how, um, we were created to be drawn to bigness and, and, and things that are so big that it makes us feel fragile and, and, and tiny and vulnerable. And, and so I believe, I really, really believe the reason why helping someone, loving someone isn't helping them grow in self-esteem, but loving someone is, the divine love is, helping them grow in God esteem, helping them grow in a greater love for God is because it's really, it's really only in His presence that we, that we find out who we are. It's, 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 when, it's when I love God more is, is when I, I grow in a greater understanding of who I am. And so we are created to find joy in God and His bigness. So, um, so what does this mean for you? Like, with roommates, with family, with people in your table group, um, maybe with a significant other, is what would it mean to start loving them the way God has loved you? What would it mean to love them the way Jesus loves? And specifically, like uh, for us as a, as a ministry, um, like how can we start demonstrating this kind of love for each other so that when... When we love one another, we're helping them love God more. So I want to invite Caleb and Connor to come up. They're going to lead us in worship here in just a little bit. But I'd love for you guys to take some time just as they come up and get set up. Um, and we, and we kind of get the lights down and everything set and ready to go. I'd love for you to just take a couple minutes um, to just think about one person and what it would look like and what it would mean uh, whoever that person is that comes to mind to show love to uh, show love to them in such a way that they could love God more that they could see God more that they could um, grow in greater appreciation for God so do that while they get ready Scott um, my oldest brother Barry he actually um, 
went down in the canyon awesome. itself That's awesome. to actually get a toy, from a little pacifier. From, from one your, of your the, kids that dropped it? Yes. Risked his life? That's awesome. Yes. 